everyone and welcome to the 45th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod we invite guests to deep dive into one of many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 45th episode I'm extremely happy to have Shavad Shabani from New York University with me. So, welcome, Shavad. Uh, could you tell us a bit about who you are? Uh, hi, uh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm an associate professor at New York University in the physics department. And also, currently, I'm the director uh, for the Center for Quantum Information Physics at the same institution. So, uh, I've been you know, at NYU for seven, eight years now, and uh, my group and expertise lies in Uh, quantum mechanics and quantum computing areas. All right. So, so how did you end up in this area? Uh, that's actually a quite interesting story. I think uh, you know when uh, I was in 1998, I want to say 1999, I was in college, and one of the professors asked us to do research uh, in, in new topics in physics. And the internet just happened around that time, and at least I had access for the first time, and I was just searching for cool things. And, and I found this topic, quantum computing, that was explored back then by, um, I think it was MIT, IBM kind of collaboration uh, that they looked at uh, uh, tra- NMR, basically, systems. And then this concept of quantum computing and communication was just emerging. So I gave actually a college one-hour kind of like a review article and lecture on this as, as the new thing that is happening. So then obviously later I, I moved to physics. I did really hardcore kind of matter uh, area, uh, solid state. And then um, when I did my PhD, it was actually on some exotic phenomena called fractional quantum Hall effect at Princeton. Uh, but then uh, after I realized actually now the qubits are actually happening in solid state systems. So I moved to Harvard where I did my postdoc uh, that they just had finished making one qubit And my basically postdoc uh, project was to make one qubit, two qubit. Wow. This was around 2010. Um, so we put a lot of effort, many of us, many dollars. And, and we, we succeeded somewhat, um, not quite as we wanted it. Uh, but that was just the beginning. And it was kind of very exciting now looking back that, you know, the project was to make one qubit, two qubit. Now, obviously, as you know, people are talking about hundreds of qubits, much, much better qubits. We are thinking, you know, in the future for, for millions of qubits and then maybe now really getting applications, you know, involved in, in the thinking that we have, right? Back then, it was really pure physics, how much control we can have on quantum systems, right? Because, you know, when I was doing my PhD and my educational work, the, the real, you know, global theme was to understand quantum mechanics, right? So you basically probe quantum mechanics through different measurements and concepts, Now, quantum computing and communication, these are basically where human beings want to control quantum phenomena, right? They just don't want to know about them. Now, we want to 
make them do what we want. And that's a much harder problem, right? Because now we are manipulating things at extreme levels. So, so that was kind of really made me uh, more excited and, you know, different kind of qubits. That was my, you know, time at Santa Barbara, Microsoft times. And then I started my lab and I started thinking about this, you know, in a more, uh, you know, in a new form that would say uh, field of quantum computing and, and com- quantum information science. And then since then, I've been doing, you know, various things in my lab. All right, that's that's super exciting. That's an uh, incredible background, really. Uh, we have a lot of listeners who don't really know what a qubit is. Is is there any way you could simply explain what a qubit is, so so people don't really compare that to normal bits and yeah, bytes? Yeah, I I can try. Uh, I, I probably I won't do justice, but uh, <laughs> I think the simplest way is starting from a bit that we all have in our iPhones and, and computers, and then the bit is relatively easy, right? There is a zero and one. And all the informations that, you know, we type in, it would eventually, at the hardware level, basically there is a voltage or no voltage that we call zero and one. Um, so, so everything can be basically described in binary language. Mm-hmm. Uh, in quantum computing, at this core, there is this thing called the qubit. And there is a still a zero and one, uh, but now the, there are lots of other representations uh, that we can consider. So you can consider, let's say, Earth. And a globe, right? Uh, the North Pole, let's say, is zero. The South Pole is one. But all the other points on, on this sphere also represents a very unique value. Uh, so this is something that we don't have classically, right? We usually just have North and South. But now you have all these other states uh, that, I mean, the number of them are infinite, obviously. So that basically has this extra thing in quantum, and that's where you know the vagueness comes, or, or there is like this ambiguity that comes with it, right? Um, and and when you make two bits in classical sense, it's just two of the same thing. In quantum, it could be two of two spheres, but it could be that these spheres somehow know about each other that we call entanglement, and that's much harder to explain. But um, in, in practice, basically, this is what puzzled Einstein for a long time, or this spooky, you know, um, action in a distance concept, that basically somehow things can know about each other, and they don't have necessarily to be next to each other, right? Because we're very used to have, like, if two electrons are next to each other, somehow there is an interaction or a coupling that basically makes them know about each other. These are the things that we study in standard physics, classical or quantum, right? But in the concept of entanglement, if I have two qubits, and I basically make them know about each other through this entanglement process. The, the, the concept says that if I take one of the qubits to the other side of the universe, very, very far away, even million light years away, they still know about each other. And this is something that still people are trying to understand you know, in more details. That, that how's, This is kind of one of the, uh, the, the foundations of quantum mechanics. And, and mm-hmm. once you accept that, then you have unlocked a whole new era, right? You know, the way that we do things now, there's a new way of doing things or the new way of thinking about this, right? And it gets really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. so, so then in the concept of quantum computing, we are bringing this back and we are saying, okay, can we do such an experiment, right? Can I make things that know about each other and separate them? And people have done it now. I mean, in the last 20 years, this thing has started in the lab and now we are talking about you know, kilometers and, and how we can even send them and use them for communication and lots of new things that are coming out. But Okay, so, so what, what, if we think about this sounds sort of super scientific, you know, what if, if we think about the real world and, and 
what, what do you think this could be used for in the long term or in the short term? Uh, what, what sort of are you after yeah. in your research? Yeah, so, um, so, so I guess com- completing my last story, uh, in real world, as you said, uh, eventually we have to look at something, right? And, and a lot of these quantum mechanical concepts are mathematically very exciting on the paper. But when you want to look at, let's say, this sphere that we talked about as qubit, I can only measure the probability of being in the north and probability being in the south. I do not have tools to go and measure, you know, on the equator. Mm-hmm. So eventually, when we come to real world, basically you are looking at this massive computational space or storage space through a very small hole that can only give you uh, very small information. Let me put numbers in so we kind of maybe grab this a little bit better. So imagine I have 50 qubits, mm-hmm. right? And the space that this um these 50 qubits can basically store, it is 2 to the power of 50. That number has 15 zeros in front of it, wow. right? So it is it's a very large space. But if I come to real world and I say I want to you know, interrogate this system, I can only learn about 50 numbers. Each qubit will only give me one number, mm-hmm. right? So basically, this is one of the catches with these this quantum systems that Although they represent a massive, massive uh, information, you're accessing them through this minimalistic uh, number that that is extremely small to the large system, right? So knowing that, um, you can still go after applications. And again, in 1999, 2000, a lot of kind of the buzz and excitement and really determinism that really came from the government and other entities was that Peter Shore at MIT basically proved that, you know, all of our communications, um, uh, I guess I would step back. You can actually, if you have a prime, if I give you a number and ask you if this is a prime number, you can basically prove that this is a very hard job to do even for a classical computer, right? You know, if I ask you number eight is a prime number, it's a small enough number that I can calculate and say, oh, it's not. And if you say seven, I can say, oh, yeah, it's prime. Mm -hmm. But if I give you a 15-digit number, and ask if this is a prime number or not, uh, it becomes a very difficult task, even for classical computers, right? So there, there are algorithms that people can actually do. And then very quickly, you can show that once this number is large enough, then the, the amount of time that it takes to decode this would be the, I don't know, the age of the earth. So, so then we are safe, right? Nobody can crack the <laughs> yeah. code. And for the same reason, they used it to basically secure our communication that we are doing right now, right? It's called RSA coding. I send you an email. The email is basically encrypted to this public-private key. And that protocol practically relies on this uh, factoring of numbers, whether they are prime or not. So it turns out Peter Shor basically could prove that, mathematically prove, really strongly prove, uh, that a quantum computer can basically crack this RSA code or this particular problem of factoring in a much, much faster time. So if it used to be age of the Earth, now it could be a few hours for a quantum computer. And that, you know, obviously has, you know, all sorts of implications. Uh, security, obviously, for all the governments, all the entities, international industry. IP is anything that we communicate. So that really kind of started things and it still is one of the biggest motivation i guess uh i guess it's a in some sense it's a bad action because we don't want to hack people 
Yeah. But, but also knowing that how it does it, we can also secure ourselves against it. So there are like these post-quantum or quantum-resistant codes that we can use. So, so it really started with that. But then later on, as now we are putting things together, it turns out actually implementing that on a quantum hardware, it's, it's, it's very far away. It's, it's one of the hardest algorithms one can implement on a quantum computer. What we can do is to look at optimization problems, to look at assist problems that are inherently quantum. For example, if you look at the molecule, uh, all of the calculations that are needed for a molecule are quantum in nature, right? Uh, because I mean, it's, it's, a, it's at a small level that, that basically is governed by those kind of rules. So then you can think of, you know, look at ammonia, look at uh, hydrogen, you know, water splitting. These, these are the problems that are kind of inherent and na native to actually a quantum computer. And I guess in general, we can maybe call it quantum chemistry. And these are the problems that are really coming up, and, and it could lead to things like drug discovery, although it's going to be a long time from now. Mm. Okay, so the, you would say in the security area and, and, and some of the chemical areas, that's where you've seen the, the sort of first success of quantum, uh, and that's where you can really see use cases that we will see in our lifetime in some way. Perhaps, perhaps, right? I think the security is going to be a longer term type thing. Mm. Um, because we know we have a mathematical proof, but implementation always comes, you know, with its own different things. The quantum chemistry just seems very native, and I'm pretty sure within the fi next five years we will hear some exciting results. Okay, so so when people say, you know, in a couple of years, you know, we will have the quantum internet, and the normal transmission will be on quantum fibers instead of normal fibers, and that's far away, uh, really, as you say. Um, so, so let me step back. Uh, yes and no. So, so if we kind of go with quantum information science as a broad term, mm -hmm. we can split the topics within that into three categories. One is quantum computing. That's where we want to crack the codes or do quantum chemistry. One is quantum communication that we basically just use it for uh, connecting, basically in sending information and not doing computing. And another one is quantum sensing, that basically how we can sense things at the ultimate quantum limit, right? So when we talk about communication, people talk about Alice and Bob and, and other protocols. Uh, it is indeed uh, through this quantum communication, and, and that is a much more mature field. Uh, mm -hmm. You can actually, people have connected providences in in U.S., in China, in various places in Europe, that you basically create this entanglement experiment I mentioned at the mm -hmm. beginning of the, of the call, and you can send, basically you entangle two photons and you send one photon and the fiber optic and miles away, you can actually try to catch that photon. And then you know that it's the same photon that was basically entangled to the photon I kept for myself. And, and, the, and the physics there is that if somebody hacks this network, this communication mm -hmm. channel, that photon will be lost. So when the photon is lost, um, you cannot basically make it up again. And also something that is very important in the foundation of quantum uh, information is that you cannot copy data. Mm. So if I have a photon and I send it to you through this channel that we're talking, I mean, if it was quantum, and, and let's say someone else tap into it and read the information I wanted to send you, you would never get a photon and you would never, the, the, the other person cannot replace it with another photon, right? So that basically means that, um, uh, there is basically a zero one in terms of the receiving of the information. And there are lots of protocols that basically do this, what we call like a quantum key distribution and beyond that, mm. that would help us to have a secure communication. 
Um, you can think of, I guess if I want to merge the two topic of computing and communication is that if we get to a point that quantum computing can hack all the classical channels, then it would be ideal to have a quantum communication channel between all the computers that some of them are quantum, right? Mm -hmm. But it also comes with caveats, right? In a regular fiber or, or a cell that we are chatting right now, there are billions of photons being sent. Yep. When you go to the quantum land, uh, those are usually going to go down to individual photons, right? So it, naturally, it would be slower to send the same amount of information. So I think in the future, we would never see Okay, I, I cautiously, <laughs> I think we would never see a complete replacement. It would always be a hybrid. Okay. Okay, so the normal transmission of ones and zero will always have to be there because that's, you, you, we can't really see, but we can use quantum to make sure that a secure transmission between A and B. Uh, yeah, for example, we can use a key that is quantum, but once the door is unlocked, we use the classical channel to actually access the information. Okay, so we as a communication operator, we shouldn't be too worried that we will be replaced with someone that's going to run traffic 100 times faster in another way. That That's not going to happen as we speak right now, because the speed of light and, and ones and zeros are still there. Uh, yeah, I, at least in the next five years, I can't see how. But, you know, this this whole field relies on breakthroughs that <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, when we are on the topic, you know, uh, the, the network around the globe today run by many operators are based on fiber. Uh, and we've almost used the same fiber type the last 20 years. Is that fiber type still the, the best one for quantum transmission? Or would other fiber types be needed for those photons that's going to do the quantum stuff? That's a very interesting question. Um, so again, the push for larger you know, size of communication that we do, social media, everyone being on the phone, has pushed the fibers to also be upgraded heavily to for higher bandwidths and everything. So currently, the, most of the quantum communication channels that, that are basically being shown are done on the same fibers. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, if you want to put numbers on it, within 10 kilometers or 10 miles, uh, roughly, you basically start losing photons. And okay. in quantum, this is extremely bad because you only have one photon. So if you lose that, you're done. In, in, in regular channels, it's okay. You have billion, billion, minus one is okay, right? So mm -hmm. if you want to do some high fidelity operation, a proper quantum communication, now the distances have to be short. So if yeah, you ask me, okay, we are ready. We want to do longer distance. Now we need new fibers, right? So we have to really improve that technology. And people are working on that. Actually, there are startups uh, making new fibers for a specific to quantum communication. Okay, yeah. I, I read in some papers that you you were part of a trial in New York where you did some transmission over a, a shorter path. You know, w what was all that about? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very interesting uh, uh, thing that we did. You know, in, in New York, it's, it's kind of funny, right? It's, it's a very vibrant large city with a lot of finance, you know, tech and, and all the other stuff. And because of that, our fibers in New York were actually pretty good mm. because we, we, you know, we, we transferred a lot of information. So what we did was actually uh, from Brooklyn, we got one of these fibers and connected it to my lab in Manhattan. And we did this exact same experiment that we created an entangled photon. We kept one of them in the lab and then sent the other one uh, to the destination and we caught it. Then classically, you can call and say, is this photon the same photon? It's basically the test that we can do. And, and we basically get a measure of how many entangled photons we send. And we showed that we can actually get quite a high number, uh, 15,000 um, okay. you know, entangled per 
and, and that's a substantially higher. Like, you know, when yeah. I said, you know, earlier people have connected providences, you know, they get, you know, a couple of photons uh, per photons per second. And that's too slow, really, to do anything meaningful, right? Yeah. But our, I guess our philosophy was that, okay, if we can really get this, which the numbers are pretty promising, now you can a smaller, start a small network. Uh, and now we are actually establishing a five-node network in, in New York, in Manhattan. And, and then uh, you can start thinking about, you know, quantum internet if you can basically address these nodes, right? So so this is kind of an upcoming area in the next five years that how we can really get there. Okay, so that's kind of the next step here. You, you've proved that you can do one link. The next step is doing five links. And, and, and... Yeah, I mean, we do point-to-point now. Yep. And then if you can really have a quantum router in some sense, uh, then then you are in business. Yeah. All right. That, that's super cool. Uh, one of the things we struggle with in our industry is to find skilled people to work in our industry. How is that on your side? You know, are there enough technicians and scientific people out there for you to use or, or is that a big problem? It is a big problem. Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, you know, our best selling case is that you're closer to the classical folks mm-hmm. in, in the regular communication. So we can actually tap into that uh, knowledge and infrastructure that already exists. But nonetheless, this is a whole new different type of communication and, and, and computing. So people, how, somehow we are all trained to be classical people, right? Now we need people to come with at least a quantum mindset, not even if it is, it does, you don't need a PhD, but you really need to know the concepts, right? So, and we don't have major programs in this area. If you look at all the universities, uh, we are way below you know, the, the, the workforce that we need uh, with all the entities that we have. And one of the major even challenges for a startup or a big company is to hiring, you know, a, an expert, basically, workforce. And, I mean, as you can imagine, a PhD takes four or five years in the United States. Mm-hmm. If you start now, you know, in five years, we will have some people. But even universities don't have that, you know, the bandwidth and, and the capability to produce large numbers, right? So, so these are really, really challenging area. And again, in quantum, and I'm sure in all areas, you want the best people. And uh, we have yeah. the excitement in quantum. So we, we are really lucky to have, you know, really, really smart people working in this area. But we are really lacking numbers. Mm-hmm. Do you also have the problem that, you know, you, you bring up people in your lab and, and they become skilled. And then private companies like the Googles and the Facebooks and these guys are stealing them. Uh, not stealing, really, yep. but uh, approaching them, giving them no, a, no, a good it's, offer. Uh, uh, it's tantalizing, right? I yep. know when I was a postdoc, I, I mentioned right earlier, um, after my PhD, you know, there was like some sort of a mainstream picture. And the mainstream picture was that 90% of the people would do a postdoc and 10% would go for R&D labs, basically. That, that was kind of, you know, after PhD and among like 20 people I knew at Princeton, that, that was the standard picture. Uh, since I've been a professor, none of my students have gone to a postdoc position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of them are going to IBM, Intel, I don't know, startup companies, and then various places. That uh, and indeed, uh, you know, it's uh, it is exciting because these bigger companies obviously have more resources to kind of really get larger scale operation going. But at the same time, um, it's also a life choice, right? You know, I, I don't know how is it in Europe, but in the United States, the postdoc salary is not comparable to an industry job uh, salary, mm-hmm. right? So you would, and now is the ideal time because you kind of do the same research and you will get paid more and it's a better life choice. So so I can see why it is happening. But that really kind of uh, undercuts our operation in the sense that if you want to create a better ecosystem mm-hmm. by people not becoming 
postdocs are not becoming professors, first, each professor cannot do the deliver the you know the, the next level and next gen project. And at the same time, we will not have enough professors to actually kind of create this, you know, um, a, a subfield uh, within each field that basically is very focused and trying to solve like really hard problems. So I think there is this kind of chicken and egg problem. Um, and uh, but but I kind of totally understand why, you know, this mm -hmm. is happening. I, but I don't know what the solution could be. Yeah. Uh, do you feel there is a good collaboration between the private companies and you guys in the research field and the, and the more uh, educational area? Or, or are the private companies doing their private stuff and not telling anyone about what they do? Or, or how do you see the collaboration here? Yeah, it is quite closed in terms of research. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, everybody is basically working on IPs and, and sort of secret things that they think is going to be the next big thing. Mm -hmm. So so people are not collaborating there, even like they just hire and they spend actually more to just completely remove one person and put them in the new place to not have these problems. And the educational outreach, they, they do a reasonable job, like, you know, IBM and, and Google and others are basically really trying to reach out to, let's say, high school levels and undergrads and kind of like really um, helping that, especially government is also kind of really putting effort and pressure on them to, to do this. And I think that's 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 really well. But in terms of the, the real problems, uh, I have seen less and less as we are making progress in terms of, you know, this kind of collaboration. and. That's also dangerous, right? In a sense, if you are 100% sure this will be the final results, maybe that's the right approach, right? But in quantum, things seem very difficult. And, and even though we have progress and, and really wins here and there, to really get to the level that we want to do the Shor's algorithm or do a really heavy quantum chemistry that would change our life, we are still probably far away. And then we need all the international you know, smart mm -hmm. people that we can get. We should really like even unite in some ways across, you know, the globe to really put our resources into complementing each other rather than, you know, creating competition against, you know, if everybody's doing the same thing and they're just asking who's going to win, this is going to take a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. But if we kind of do multitasking and distribute the task and, and we kind of trust each other, then obviously we get to the final goal earlier. I guess there is this kind of dynamic going on and and mm -hmm. as you can imagine, I mean, it's yeah. just kind of a challenging topic. No, I fully understand. Thanks everyone for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Shavad Shabani. So stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the X handle ConnectivityPod for updates.